Hello, welcome to the Queen's Reading Room podcast, the place where we invite lovers of literature to share with us some of the bookish treasures from their own reading rooms. Last week, we eavesdropped on the bookshelf secrets of the creator of Inspector Rebus, Ian Rankin. Still to come up in this brand new series, we'll hear from author and comedian David Baddiel, novelists Elif Shafak, Anne Patchett and Bonnie Garmus, as well as children's writers Joseph Coelho and Frank Cultural Boyce. Plus, each week we're joined by Her Majesty the Queen herself. I'm Vicky Perrin, Chief Executive of the Queen's Reading Room, and today I'm inviting you to join us as we pop the kettle on and explore the bookshelves of an absolutely fabulous actress, author, activist and national treasure. Unforgettable as Patsy Stone, she's also the author of eight books and is a secret fan of boxing. While we won't be getting into that hobby today, we will with much delight be stepping into the reading room of... Hello, I am Joanna Lumley. ...to explore the books she simply couldn't live without. It's um, really thrilling today to be talking about what is literally my favourite subject on earth apart from gardening and being with people and entertaining us, which is reading. Luckily, I was an early reader, so I could read by the time I was four and would roll my eyes and we had to go A says ah, B says but, and you go, oh, I know this. I can remember being four and going, come on, let's get to the stuff. I remember being read to and the joy of the very first time you find out that you actually can read for yourself. And to anybody listening out there, of whatever age, one of the best things in the world to do is to sit with somebody and read. Children love it. Let them lean over your shoulder, if possible. Let them see the words as you say them. This is how you teach people to read. Because later on, when they get those things, they remember the story or they remember the thing, and they can see where your finger was. Follow with your finger if you want to. Make sure people understand it. One of the most heartbreaking things in the world I've discovered is that a lot of people who are held in prison, can't read, and they find life very difficult to manage. They have to second guess. Being able to read is one of the greatest skills you can ever have in life. It is second to being able to speak, and it is third to being able to breathe, which is obviously first, obviously first on the list. In our house, which is tall and thin, it's a London house, we love it dearly, it's in South London, and you come in and it's not quite like a buttery gas ladder, but there are kind of two rooms on each floor. So you come in and there's the hallway and there's the drawing room and then my study. Then you go up and there's our bedroom and bathroom. Then you go up and then there's the guest room and, listen to this people, the guest library and the bathroom. And then you go up to the attic where there are three little rooms and a bathroom and each of the rooms has got books in it. People, listen, I live in a place in London which is full of people trying to restore their homes or indeed prop them up, repaint them. We have a flight path that changes all the time so aeroplanes go over it. Sometimes foxes come and look through the door and occasionally they yap. We won't get the foxes today. But you might hear clinks and clanks. And that is not me unpacking a, a crate of more books, although it might be. Um, where do I keep the books in the house? Well, it's self-evident. I kind of want to keep them in bookshelves along the walls so that you don't actually fall over them. But this is not always the case. Sometimes they stack up under our feet. All my tables 
uh, in my study are piled up with books that I'm about to read, that I've been asked to read, that people have kindly sent me. I've got books, shelves into which I stick things and I put ornaments in front or a card or a pretty picture, but I know roughly where my books are. Can you see my nose, viewers, listeners, going longer and longer? It's because that's a lie. I don't know where all my books are. I think I know where they are. And I go, but it was here. And then I imagine the spine of the book to be a particular colour. And I go through, then I realise it was not orange, it was green. Um, let's say Dickens, Austen, Kipling... Um, some of the uh, French authors, which sounds a bit sort of pompous, Anthony Pohl's Dance of the Music of Time 1 to 12, I have them all neatly arranged in order because those are kind of precious and I have to know where they are. So the thing is, I feel a, a room is unfurnished without books. I feel actually a staircase is unfurnished without a bookshelf. A lavatory is a sad place to be if you haven't got something to read beside you. It can be a magazine, it can be books. It can even be just stuff on the wall. Something if you're, A breakfast table is boring without something. So have something like, even if it's cereal packets, have something you can read, let your eyes read. Reading is so frantically important. Poetry is hugely important to me. I always have a book of poetry beside my bed. I usually take a book of poetry away when I travel, and I've got a whole um, bookshelf of, of poets. Not in order, but of course you've got the, the huge ones. You've got Wilde and Elliot and things like this, and Seamus Heaney and Ted Hughes, Rattlebag and things like that. You've got Shakespeare and so on, John Donne. So you've got to have those, but I, I also like new poets. And uh, I'm lucky enough to have met at one stage all the poets laureate of the British Isles and United Kingdom and Ireland. They were all women. Make of that what you will. Women are poets at heart. Always were. I'm going to do a poem and I hope I get this right. It's um, The Tale of Wandering Angus and it's by one of my favourite poets, W.B. Yeats, the great Irishman. Um, I went out to the Hazelwood because... A fire was in my head and cut and stripped a hazel wand and tied a berry to a thread. And when white moths were on the wing and moth-like stars were flickering out, I dropped the berry in a stream and caught a little silver trout. When I'd laid it on the floor, I went to blow the fires aflame, but something rustled on the floor and someone called me by my name. It had become a glimmering girl with apple blossom in her hair who called me by my name and ran and vanished in the brightening air. Though I'm old with wandering through hollow lands and hilly lands, I will find out where she has gone and kiss her lips and take her hands and wander through long dappled grass and pluck till time and times are done the silver apples of the moon the golden apples of the sun I can't really go to sleep without reading. So the first thing I do, even on my faraway trips, even banging about on a boat off the Banda Islands at the far end of Indonesia, what I always have with me is a clock so I know when to get up and a book so I can read and a torch. Sometimes you need a torch. So 
my happiest place to read actually is in bed at night. If I read in the middle of the day, I feel like a sinner. Isn't it pathetic? I feel I should be working. You must work. So the idea of sitting down with a book is a luxury I've never tasted. Do I collect books? Yes, because the first thing my parents ever did for any birthday or Christmas, the first present you always knew you would get would be a book. We'd get books in our Christmas stockings, a penguin book. We'd have books as a, as a birthday present, books as a Christmas present. And I've got to tell you, give somebody a book and they are thrilled to bits. Some people would like to have a cookery book. Some would like to have a reference book, maybe um, a, an Italian phrase book or something like that. Some would like to have a copy of a Shakespeare play. Some would like to have the latest racy novel, or some would like to have a classics spy story by John le Carre. Find it, needn't be expensive, can be paperback, can be got from a second-hand shop, the best place in the world for finding books. Give books. When you're stuck to give a present to somebody, it doesn't matter who they are, Give them a book. If they're little, make it a darling book. If they're children, try to read or have a look at the book yourself. Some of them are badly written. Hate to say that. Don't let children read badly written books. That's a horrible thing to say, but it's true. So look through and see it and see if you like it. If they've got nice drawings, make sure they're nice, interesting drawings. How long have I had books in my life? The answer is forever. Do I regularly add more? Yes, I do. I am given lots. Lots of people kindly send me their new books. I'm addicted to getting books. I cannot pass a bookshop without buying a book. I cannot pass um, a second-hand bookshop or a charity shop without having a quick snoop through maybe a box on the pavement where they say, help yourself. I do. I like to give them back too. So if you can, I take books down to the charity shop if they want them. I take them um, at the Oval Station, which is quite near where I live. They have a lovely little rack of, of books for people to read. And they play, they play into the station classical music. And people listen to the classical music and pick up a book. Is that probably the most civilised station in Europe? I think so. Oval, go there. You get to watch cricket as well. So that's lovely. I'm not a great science fiction aficionado, but when somebody says, have you not read Isaac Asimov's this, that, and the other, you go, oh, no, I haven't, but I will, because you've said so, and it's good, and by golly, it is good. It isn't naturally one I would gravitate towards. Try to occasionally jump out of your, um, you know, if they say rather patronizing chick lit stuff, you know, beach read stuff, it doesn't matter if it's beach read, it doesn't matter how easy a book is to read. If it's good, it's, it's engrossing. Um, sometimes take... Go, go for a spy thriller. Sometimes read The Spy That Came In From The Cold and see if you like it, see if you like the tension of that. Um, I've just had the great privilege of working for and with the great Harlan Coburn, who's one of the blockbuster writers in the world. He writes massive page-turning thrillers with more twists and turns than a snake through water. And uh, I've just done one of his uh, books for Netflix in an eight-part series, have a go at Harlan Coburn because no matter who you are, you'll suddenly th you'll see this great fat book. You go, oh God, I'd never get through that. Start, pick it up and start, and you go, oh, it's not hard at all. This is easy. This is exciting. People are well drawn. There's lots of chat in it. I I'm a bit allergic to books that are written without any paragraphs or any breaks or any talking. And you see nine or ten pages of solidly written, unbroken up, and you kind of go, hmm, this is a little bit challenging, because your heart needs a rest. You need to breathe in time. You need Your eyes need a rest. You need to be able to put the bookmark in and say, I'll read to the bottom of that paragraph, then I'm going to stop. Um, 
so I like a book to be laid out beautifully. I like the writing to be clear. I like the right typeface. I like the paper. I like paper to be good. Nimby pimby pamby. Look at what's happened to me. Sometimes when you're feeling a bit sort of, we all get this muddled or gloomy or going slightly off the tracks. Make sure that what you read is a good thing, is a safe thing. Don't go into horrible, don't read beastly and horrible things. Sometimes I've had to put a book down at night time because the images it's bringing up are too horrible for that night. They might be books that you have to read and that you ought to know about. But don't stuff your head with bad stuff and that goes with bad writing. Be alert to bad writing. It's like horrible food. Don't have it in your house or in your heart or in your mouth or certainly not in your eyes. Um, sometimes books I admire hugely I come back to because I cannot work out how to construct a book in that way. Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca is one of the most extraordinary returnable to books I've ever read. I read it when I was young. I read it when I was about 14. And I couldn't stop at the end of each chapter. So I think I had to sit up all through the night with a torch in my dormitory at school reading it. It is utterly riveting. And when you read it, you realize at the end that the person who's writing it is never called by a name. You never know her name. You just have to call her the second Mrs. to Winter. The tension mounts, 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 mounts. And the final screw which goes into your heart which is hinted at right at the very beginning of the book, you don't understand it, only comes on the last page, literally the last page, the last three paragraphs. It is riveting. So I returned to that book to see how, in my own feeble writing career, because I write, um, I could better my prose so that I could get that brilliance of Daphne du Maurier. Another book I returned to, which I've mentioned already, which is A Dance the Music of Time, the 12-part Masterwork by Anthony Pohl, uh, which is one of the best histories I think of the of the twentieth century that you will ever read in your life. Hysterically funny, utterly brilliant, mesmerically. He, well, people say, oh, but he's not as good as Proust. Listener, he's better. Okay, I'm just saying that. I've reread *Dance the Music of Time* all twelve books about six times. Proust, who I love, massively talented. A lot of people struggle with him. What book have I had the longest? I was um, given a little book when I was in in, uh, Malaysia as a child. It's called Pony the Penguin. And it was about a little penguin. So, of course, Antarctica rather than Arctic who saw the aurora australis um, and gaped at it and wondered what it was, this silk curtain in the sky. And he prompted me, that little book of Pony the Penguin, much, much later in life to go off in search of the Northern Lights, which became a television programme, which luckily a lot of people saw and loved. And it was filming the aurora borealis, which is now very common and is seen all over England and Scotland, as well as up in the northern, you know, northern hemisphere and right in the Arctic Circle. Uh, I love books. I read them till they fall apart. Then I sellotape them and put them together. And there's nothing like opening up a child's book, which you remember very well. One book that my sister and I hated, because when you opened it, it was something like the Red Fairy book. There was a three-headed monster which came out from behind a door with warts and sprouty hair and grasping knuckles. And its three-faced gape was one of the most frightening things in the world. So books keep books and look back at them. 
Don't be too brisk with anything in your life. Don't keep throwing things out. Again. Come on, tidy room. No, cluttered room. Listener, please clutter, clutter your life. Have plenty, plenty, plenty of stuff. That's all I'm saying. I live in a cluttered life. I wade through things. I look like it too, I know. So this is probably why I'm not a Hollywood movie star. I had a very happy life though. Um, in happiness or sadness, what do I reach for? Jane Austen, as funny and as charming and as perfect and as amusing and as glorious as you'll ever get. Um, lots of people commend Jane Austen. There are the Janeites who adore her and will have nothing said against her. But really, Pride and Prejudice, which I had the privilege of reading as one of those audio books and made myself laugh out loud when I was doing Lady Catherine de Burr. And she was terribly grand and I made her speak a little bit like Edith Evans. And she was full of disdain for Lizzie. I adored it. Anyway, uh, so Pride and Prejudice, go back and read that again. I was made to read it at school because we were supposed to be doing it at O-level and I stuck my toes in because I hated being told, you must read this. And of course, as soon as I read it, I reread it, reread it. I adore it. I simply love it. What books would I simply never be parted from? My complete works of Shakespeare my sister gave me. A dictionary that was given to me when I started writing. Um properly, professionally, as it were, for the Times. I'd written a piece for the listener, um, and then I was a diarist on the Times for a bit, then I wrote all sorts of interviews, then I wrote a book, then a second book, then a third book, and then wrote more articles and things. But all the time, you've got to have dictionaries with you. Dictionaries are riveting. Don't go onto your, um, iPhone, your phone, your laptop and do it, because then you only find the word. With a dictionary, you have the splendor of riffling through the pages, seeing words you'd never dreamt of, okay? Oh, oh, really? And so you work through a dictionary, and it's the slowest and happiest time in your life. That goes with atlases. If you don't want to give somebody, give them cookery books or atlases. They'll love it. They'll thank you forever. Thank you forever. And also a French phrase book. It's always helpful. There are books I've never read, and of course I haven't read all of Dickens. And you see Martin Chuzzlewit sitting on the shelf and you know the name. And sometimes, and in my career, I also think I know people and I've only seen them on television. They, re they read the news. Or sometimes I do know them, but I've forgotten and I think they're just famous. So this is the same with books. And you see Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. You go, I've probably read that, and I haven't. So I'm ashamed of those things. Never be ashamed of books. Just pick them up and read them. You can start today. Are there times in my life when I've struggled to read and what, what would have brought me back to reading if I'd suddenly gone off it? I haven't gone off reading ever, but once I was parted from books for 10 days when I was cast away on a desert island and I was cast away with virtually nothing, I didn't have toothbrush or soap or comb. I hardly had food. I had certainly nothing, no books to read, nothing. I had nothing. I lived like an animal with two knives and bits of cloth and a handful of rice every day. And it was, it was weird because I panicked. Two things I can't really do that. No, three, well, four, no, three. Okay, one, breathing. Two, reading. Three, music. And I thought, well, I'll be able to breathe, but what about the reading and the music? How will I do without them? How will I do for days without reading and hearing music? And this is the answer. If you've read a lot... And the much frowned upon learning poetry by heart, which I still think is a wonderful thing to do, particularly for children. If you've read a lot or seen a lot of movies 
or listen to a lot of music. It's all packed inside you. And what we tend to do every day is to pack even more stuff in, to take in more and more stuff. We've got screens telling us, and our little bodies are crammed, 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 crammed. If you take the lid off that and nothing else is going in, your brain goes, hang on, gone very quiet. Can we hear anything? It's gone very quiet. Oh, my goodness. And stuff begins to bubble up. And you remember stories, poems, you hear music, you remember words to songs, you hear old pop songs, you hear snatches of symphonies, and out comes bubbling, some more poetry you read, then something, and you go, what was the name of that? What was the name of, for instance, Darcy's sister? Was she? And then you go on to pronunciation, was she called Georgina or Georgiana, as people call her? And off you go, and packed into you is masses. So don't be afraid of forgetting or losing reading because it will come back come back little by little look for small small things um i'm trying to think of what would be a nice small book to read and i think something by paul gallico would be as nice as anything read the snow goose have a little bit of a blub at the end then you remember jenny agatha do you see off you go on something else reading takes you to places it's the best journeyman it's the best hand you can hold through life I wrote a book last year, it was called A Queen for All Seasons, and it was a collection of tributes from people, I was going to say throughout the decades, and that's absolutely true, the decades of her life, who remembered the Queen or who had met the Queen, and from very grand people, like members of the royal family or Winston Churchill, right down to the little girl who waved a flag in New Zealand when the Queen's car passed, all kinds of bits, diaries, newspaper articles, recollections, letters, books all gleaned in as a kind of tribute to Her Majesty. And I'd put them into a shape, themes rather than going through her life chronologically. And that was rather lovely, the Queen at home, the Queen with animals, the Queen abroad, the Queen with politicians, the Queen with famous people and so on. But I wanted to send her this book because I wanted her to know how much she was loved. I said, may I send Her Majesty a copy? They said, you may, and we'll be sure that it's placed before Her Majesty. So the idea that my book has been placed wafted in front of Her Majesty's face. I loved that. I'm so thrilled about that. Um, I went to a book, a book launch two days ago. I'd had the great luck to read it first and to scribble something nice for the cover. But it was Jane Glover, the great conductor's book on Mozart's life in Italy when he was only a 14-year-old and went and stormed. I mean, Justin Bieber eat your heart out, baby. Mozart was unbelievable. So if you have a chance to read Mozart in Italy, grab it. I read it like a thriller. I read I read six or seven books at the same time um, so that you can choose what... And I hold, hold the storylines in my head. It's no cleverer than weaving or knitting or doing embroidery when you do a little bit of red. I can't embroider. You can hear this. I mean, you can tell even by trying to gesticulate madly with my hands. But you do a little bit of red, then you put that down, do a little bit of blue on the side of the thing. Or weaving when you put these colours in or anything that you mix and match when you're painting and you finish with that green and you rinse your brush and start off with gold. So read lots of books at the same time. When, you don't, when, when you're reading a dutiful book, oh, you can't face that tonight, I'm tired. Read something that's entertaining and lovely and racy or witty or comforting. And if something's frightening, read something safe. Don't frighten yourself. And once you've got books stored in you, they belong to nobody but you. I found one of the most thrilling things in the world was to think when I was reading it about 2.15 one morning, 
in, late, late with my torch somewhere. And I thought, I think I'm the only person in India at the moment who is reading this page of this book at this time on earth. Magic. I can't really say how important reading is to me. It means everything. Once some, somebody said to me, I'd rather live life than read about it. Reading isn't reading about life. It's an addition to life. You don't have to replace life with it. I fill life with plenty of stuff, I think. But reading gives you the best insight into philosophies, into other people's ways of thinking, into other dilemmas, something that will never happen to you, good or bad, right or wrong, should she leave him? Should he have killed her? Should this have happened? Would you have stolen it? All these sorts of debates take place in the pages of a book. The other extraordinary thing is that give or take size, most books are roughly the same size and roughly sit on shelves. And everything we've ever learned about everything, stars and medicine and grammar and war and languages and histories, it's, it's in books. Not in films, not in textiles, it's in books. So get some books, start reading. I adore it. You'll thank me. Well, you won't thank me, obviously. But I want to be the duck that says to you, sweetheart, start reading. You'll be thankful forever. Dame Joanna is a dear friend of the Queen's Reading Room. And in the summer of 2022, she sat down with Her Majesty the Queen, as well as presenters Afra and Giles Brandreth, to launch the Commonwealth Poetry Podcast. Exploring the unique and special power of poetry, they shared with each other some of their most adored poems and together read one of their all-time favourites, Nightmail by W.H. Auden. It's time to read Nightmail by W.H. Auden, who was born in 1907 and lived to 1973. It's a wonderful poem and the rhythm here is extraordinary. Your Highness, take it away. This is the nightmare crossing the border, bringing the cheque and the postal order. Letters for the rich, letters for the poor, the shop at the corner, the girl next door. Putting up B-talk, a steady climb, the gradient's against her, but she's on time. Past cotton grass and moorland boulder, shoveling white steam over her shoulder. Snorting noisily as she passes, silent miles of wind-bet grasses. Birds turn their heads as she approaches, stare from bushes at her blank-faced coaches. Sheepdogs cannot turn her course. They slumber on with paws across. In the farm, she passes, no one wakes, but a jug in a bedroom gently shakes. Dawn freshens. Her climb is done. Down towards Glasgow she descends, towards the steam tugs yelping down a glade of cranes, towards the field of apparatus, the furnaces set on the dark plain like gigantic chessmen. All Scotland waits for her, in dark glens, beside pale green lochs, men long for news. Letters of thanks, letters from banks, letters of joy from girl and boy, receipted bills and invitations to inspect new stock or to visit relations, and applications for situations, and timid lovers' declarations, and gossip, gossip from all the nations. News circumstantial, news financial, letters with holiday snaps to enlarge in, letters with faces scrawled in the margin, letters from uncles, cousins and aunts, letters to Scotland from the south of France, letters of condolence to highlands and lowlands, written on paper of every hue, the pink, the violet, the white and the blue, the chatty, the catty, the boring, the adoring, the cold and official, and the hearts outpouring, clever, stupid, short and long, the typed and the printed, and the spelt all wrong. 
Thousands are still asleep, dreaming of terrifying monsters or a friendly tea beside the band in Cranston's or Crawford's, asleep in work in Glasgow, asleep in Wellset Edinburgh, asleep in Granite Aberdeen. They continue their dreams, but shall wake soon and hope for letters, and none will hear the postman's knock without a quickening of the heart, for who can bear to feel himself forgotten? In each episode of this podcast, we put a question to the Queen about her own reading room. This time, we asked Her Majesty, of the three Bronte sisters, which are we most likely to find on Your Majesty's bookshelves, and why? Definitely, Emily, yeah. And I think Wuthering Heights has always been one of my favourite books, so... Um, you know, I think you, you want to have the author of your favourite book. No, I love them all, but I would certainly pick Emily. That is just about all we have time for this episode. Just before we go, let's hear a favourite line of literature from one of our guardians of this nation's reading rooms, volunteer librarian Marie from Newquay Community Library. When I'm an old woman, I shall wear purple with a red hat which doesn't go and doesn't suit me. From Warning by Jenny Joseph. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from the Queen's Reading Room. We are a charity on a mission to spread the joy of books and reading. You can find out more about what the Queen is reading and what she recommends by joining her book club on Instagram at the Queen's Reading Room or by checking out our website, thequeensreadingroom.co.uk for more fabulous literary treasures. Next week, we delve into the bookshelves of our nation's children's laureate, Joseph Coilo. See you next time.